Jesus' name, amen. There's a story that Randy Elkhorn tells about Ruth Anna and Roy Metzger. They were singers. They were invited to sing in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a spectacular wedding that was being held at the Columbia Tower. That's a skyscraper in Seattle. And this was going to be an amazing event. It was an amazing wedding. They sang at the wedding. And they sang, the, the, the ceremony was held on the second to the highest floor. And then kind of following the ceremony, there was going to be a huge banquet, a huge reception. And in order to take part in that reception, you had to leave kind of the area on the lower floor where the wedding took place and go up this beautiful glass staircase. And as you arrived at the top of that black staircase, there was a man who was standing there and he had a book. And then the people would go up to the man and they would tell him their name. He would find their name in the book and then he would allow them to go to this beautiful banquet. I mean, the hors d'oeuvres were amazing. The tables were amazing. Everything was decorated perfectly. The food was going to be delicious. And so, um, so Ruthanna and Roy make their way and finally it's their turn and the, the uh, man who's standing there with the book asks him uh, their name and they said, well, Metzger. And so he starts looking through the book and he says, you know, I, I can't find it in here. Can you spell that for me? And so slowly they spelled out their last name and he said, um, it, your name is not here. They said, but, but we sang in the wedding. We're a big part of the wedding. How could our name not be in the book? And he said, he said, it really doesn't matter what you did. Without your name in the book, you can't attend the banquet. And so at that moment, the man called over some of the wait staff. The wait staff came over and he said, can you escort these people to the service elevator? And so they said, there they walked by all of these beautiful tables. Everything adorned so amazingly. Walked by all of these hors d'oeuvres prior to the meal. All of these, these accoutrements that went along with the wedding. And then they went to the service elevator. The wait staff hit the button G and they went all the way to the ground and out the door and then they found themselves walking to their car. Now you, that, that was a disappointing moment for that couple. We know that. Well, sometimes Christians, we live our lives waiting for the other shoe to drop and sometimes when we read the book of, of Job, we can, we can feel like the Christian life can be a very disappointing life. But I want you to know that that is not the case at all. The, the lesson that the book of Job teaches us is that there should be no people on earth, no people alive who should be more joyful than Christians. There ought to be no people alive more joyful than Christians. Now, um, all of you probably are familiar with the story. We've gone over it a number of times, but in case that you haven't, Job was a man who had been blessed by God. God gave him what seemingly, what appeared to be the perfect life. He had the perfect family. He was the wealthiest man in his whole part of the world. He was someone who was a godly man, God-fearing man. It seemed he was highly respected in his community. If there was somebody who had it all, it was him. And so the Lord had a couple of confrontations with Satan who came to the Lord and he said, you know, the reason why Job lives the way he does, the reason why Job fears you the way he does, is because, is because of all the benefits you give him. You take away those benefits and Job will curse you to his face. 
to your face. And so the Lord said, okay, we'll see. And so Job lost his possessions. Job lost his servants. Job lost his respect in the community. Job's body was absolutely uh, torn apart. And Job lost all of his children. His marriage was broken. Everything about Job's life was terrible. Satan went in with full force and attacked Job. And then, after Job refused to curse God to his face, then he sent his three friends who drove him to the brink of madness. And so we, we have the story of Job dealing with all of these things. But in Job's pain, in Job's dialogues with his friends, Job be began to develop a distorted understanding of who God was. He began to question God's justice. And so the Lord confronts Job with this, and we see this in the, in the text in front of us in, in uh, chapter 40, verses 8 and 9. This is what uh, the Lord says to him, will you even put me in the wrong? You see, Job, said all these, uh, Job realized that all these bad things were happening to him. Job didn't do anything to cause it. Job was sure of that. And if that was the case, that means that God is unjust in the way that he dealt with him. So the Lord says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job was, was so much trying to say that he, he had lived an exemplary life that now he was accusing God of doing wrong for allowing the things that happened to him to happen to him. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And so um, in, the, in the chapters that we have, the Lord uh, challenges Job to look at a, a couple of animals, and, or a couple of creatures. And last time, as we noticed, God took Job through a whole number of animals that, that he, he challenged him to think about. And at the end of that whole first dialogue with Job, God challenged Job to a wrestling match. Job came to the end. Job was, God wiped Job off the mat. Uh, God had him pinned, but Job refused to say uncle. And so the Lord, in his graciousness, he, he re-engages Job again. He says, I want you to dress like a man, be ready for action. God was going to go to round two of the wrestling match. And so in this round two of the wrestling match, he now introduces two mysterious creatures. The first one is the behemoth, and the second one is the leviathan. Now, um, let's let's uh, just take a moment and, and get a description of both of them, a quick description of both of them. And you know, one of the hardest things about preaching is not what to what we should include in in a in a sermon. The the hardest part is what we should take out. And, and there's no way that we could cover everything, all the material, all the beautiful material in these chapters that we're looking at, chapters 40 to 42. And so we're going to just try to take snapshots of it so that we can we can get a description so that we can see what's here. But he gives us this, this picture of the behemoth. And uh, we notice it in 15 to 24, but we're just going to uh, uh, take a, a few isolated looks at what he says about the behemoth, this creature. And as we read it, I want you to ask yourself the question, what kind of creature is this that God is talking about? We're also going to look at the Leviathan. We're gonna, we were going to ask ourselves a question, what kind of creature is this that we're talking about with the Leviathan? All right. So now we have this. In chapter 40, verses 15 through 18, it says, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, in his power, in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. So we have this 
picture of this magnificent creature that God completely controls. And then we have a picture of a, we have it, it tells us again in 24, verse 24, the same chapter, 4024, it says, can you draw, uh, uh, can we go back one more? 4020, there we go. Can you take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? So he's saying, Job, you know, here's this magnificent creature that he's describing. Do you have the power to, um, to, to just put a, put, a, put a snare in his nose or put, put a hook in his nose and, and pull him around as you wish? Job, I can do that. I can do that. Well, then we have another creature. We have the Leviathan. We notice this in chapter 41. There's this long description of the Leviathan. And we notice in verses 1 and 2, he says, Can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook or press down on his tongue with a cord? So we know that it must be some kind of sea creature, right? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And then we read at the end of the chapter, His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. So we have this picture of this creature that is this, like this tempest in the sea. And what God is saying is, is that God can put a fish hook in his mouth and he can drag him around. And Job, can you do that? Do you have that kind of power? Well, the question that we have, the first question is this. What is the identity of these creatures? What is God getting at in his discussion with Job about how he absolutely can dominate these creatures. Well, number one, here's, here's a first option, and that the creatures are wild animals. The creatures are wild animals. A lot of scholars think this. Um, some people think that the behemoth is a hippopotamus. Let me show you why. Uh, in, 40, ver, uh, in chapter 40, verses 21 to 23, it tells us this. Do we have that one, chapter 40, 21 to 23? All right, I might have forgotten to give, put that one in there. So I'm going to read it. It says this, Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh, for his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened, he is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. That sound like a hippopotamus? He uh, makes his, his uh, place under the lotus plants. He lies in the reeds and the marsh. If you've ever seen maybe YouTube videos of, of uh, hippopotamuses, or maybe somebody here has been on a safari and you've seen a hippopotamus, but, but they, they, are the, they are the kings of the pond. And probably of all of the land animals, they are the most fierce and most dangerous and so some people think God is describing the hippopotamus here. And with the uh, Leviathan, a lot of scholars think that this is a reference to crocodiles. Okay, now look at 41, 14 through 17. Um, and we have that up there, I know that. Okay, who can open the doors of his face around his teeth as terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One so near to another that no air can come between them. You see why they think crocodile? Um, let's keep going. Verse 17, they are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. And so a lot of scholars say, oh, the first one is a hippopotamus, the powerful creature. Job, can you control a hippopotamus? Job, can you control a crocodile? Now, that sounds good to a certain point, but 
But there are problems with this, particularly with the second one, but we'll go to the first. Um, we read in 4017 that he makes his tail stiff like a cedar. Well, okay, now let's go back to that picture of a hippopotamus with the monkey. Uh, we have a picture of a monkey holding on to the tail of a hippopotamus. And uh, one thing that we can say about a hippopotamus tail, if you have a chance to look at it, it, it does not appear to be stiff like a cedar tree. Um, and, uh, but but there's, more, there's more to the second one, I think. Um, more with the identification of a Leviathan that makes us think that probably th- these are not references to animals in the, in the wild. <clears throat> Notice uh, chapter uh, 41, 19 through 21. This is what it says about the Leviathan. It says, out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Okay, so when was the last time you, um, you saw a picture of a crocodile? Here's a crocodile. When was the last time you saw a picture of a crocodile and you saw it breathing fire? Um, probably not, right? Um, the idea that, that these are actually animals in the wild is a bit of a stretch, I think. And, and really, I think that the main reason why we, we don't want to, uh, and, and the description that it gives to the creatures are so much bigger than what we see in a hippopotamus, and, and especially in a crocodile. I mean, this leviathan is like this matchless creature that no one can touch, and, and crocodiles may be like that, but, but not to the same degree that we see described in, in, uh, in, jo- in, in Job 41. Well, well, how should we interpret this? What is the best way to do it? Well, there's a principle when we are interpreting the Bible that we need to remember, and that we need to make sure that we interpret the Bible with the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so the Bible gives a description of Leviathan. And we see this in Isaiah 27, 1. This is what Isaiah 27 one says about Leviathan. In that day, the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What is he saying here? He's saying that Leviathan is a dragon, is this beast that God will slay in the end time. Well, if you read the book of Revelation very quickly, you will notice that God slays a dragon in the end time. And the identity of that dragon that he slays is none other than Satan himself. The word behemoth, the the word uh, behemoth means literally beast. In fact, um, if you were to read Psalm 73, verse 22, the psalmist says to the Lord, I was like a brute beast before you. The psalmist was describing himself like a behemoth. I was like a brute beast before you. And uh, in the the book of Revelation, you can see that God's great end time opponents are going to be this great dragon and these beastly creatures, but God will defeat them. And by the way, as we have read the book of Job, isn't that what Job is dealing with? He's dealing with that dragon, that dragon who has come and who has attacked him. This is the identity of the one that has come against him. And so in this way, we see God hinting to Job what is happening in his life. 
You see, one of the reasons why Job is confused about his suffering and one of the reasons why we're often confused about our suffering is because we don't always see the bigger picture. We don't see heaven opened up the way that we read it in the book as these readers. We know that Satan is attacking Job. We know the things that are causing his calamity, but he doesn't see any of it, and so he's just angry, and his understanding of God is distorted, and he doesn't see the bigger picture. But in this event, in these descriptions of these two beasts that God will defeat, that God can yank around by the might of his power, that God can, can, uh, can uh, tie, put a hook in his nose and can drag him where he wills, God is saying to Job that, Job, I'm ultimately in control of this situation. I'm ultimately in control of this life, and you can trust me. So what does Job do? Well, Job repents. We notice in, in, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 42 Uh, Job confessed that he hid counsel without knowledge. This is exactly the charge God made against him in chapter 38, verse 2, that Job was was, um, obscuring knowledge about God without counsel. Job was, was, uh, uh, was developing this idea of God that wasn't wrong based on the issues and problems that he faced in life. Don't we do that? Sometimes when we go through hardships, we go through trouble, all of a sudden we form opinions about God that, 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 that are based on the things that we have gone through. We might begin to think like Job, that God is unjust, that God doesn't treat us fairly, that there must be something wrong with God. Maybe, maybe God enjoys seeing us go through pain. Maybe God enjoys seeing us go through times of trial and trouble. And God is correcting all of that. And Job comes to a place where he agrees with God about his sin. And by the way, that's, that's the, the beginning of repentance. We must first agree with God about our sin. And if we don't agree with God about our sin, there's no way that we can be reconciled to him. Job's reconciliation in this matter began, began at a point when he agreed with God about what God said about him. We need to think about our own lives. Sometimes we have a way of rationalizing our sin, our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions, and we begin to tell ourselves that it's okay and that, that, uh, that, that, it, that it's not really offensive to God. But the reality is, is that our sin is offensive to God and our sin separates us from God. And it's only when we come to grips with our sin and our need for him that the process of restoration and reconciliation can come. And that's what happened in Job's life. In fact, Job said in 42.5, he said these words. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself. And that, that could be alternatively translated, I reject what I said and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job came to a point now where he said, uncle, when he began to see God in his magnificent power, that God is in control of all things, that even, the, even the, the, the realm, the domain of evil and all of the injustice that takes place in the world, even God is sovereign over all of those things and that he has a plan and purpose in everything that we face. It brought Job finally to a place where he recognized that God was worthy of the position that he was, that God is just, and so Job repented. Not only that, in the story, we notice that Job and his friends repented and they were restored we read in chapter 42 verse 7 that God's anger burned against Job Job's friends 
as one who, who had accused Job of all of this wrongdoing, they said, Job, you know, the reason why you're suffering is because you've done terrible things. You just need to admit it and get on with it, and that's the deal. And, and none of that was true. They spoke falsely of Job, and that's why they had to offer a sacrifice where Elihu didn't. Elihu never made those kinds of accusations against Job. That was the fourth figure in the book, if any of you were following along. And it's interesting what they had to bring. They had to bring an expensive sacrifice. It was seven bulls, seven rams as a burnt offering. A, a sacrifice like that could only be, only those who are royal could afford something like this. They had to bring a sacrifice like that. Job had to act as their priest, as their mediator. And it tells us that, that when Job offered up a prayer on their behalf, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, it's very important that when we read the Bible, particularly when we're reading the Old Testament, but that we always read it in light of Jesus. You see, here Job resembles Jesus. Think about Job and his friends. Job's friends betrayed him. Job's friends wronged him. And what was Job's role in their reconciliation with God? He had to be their mediator. He had to be their priest. He had to offer prayers on their behalf. God heard his prayer and God forgave them of what they did once they offered that sacrifice. And so in this way, Job points us to Jesus and the work that Jesus did for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He is our true mediator. Job, Job couldn't uh, do anything. Those sacrifices couldn't do anything to to ultimately take their sins away. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But what those actions did was point to another one who would come, who would come later to save the world, that is Jesus, who would offer himself as a sacrifice for us so that through him we might be reconciled to God. And that's the most important question we can ask ourselves is whether or not we've been reconciled to God. And so we see that God restored them through this sacrifice and through the work of a mediator. And finally, uh, we notice here that uh, Job's life was restored. So Job repented, his friends repented and were restored. Now Job is restored in his life. In fact, it tells us in 42, verse 10, chapter 42, 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It was like a, playing a country music song backwards, right? He got his house back. He got his wife back. He got his dog back. He got his truck back. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what happened to Job. It tells us that God restored his wealth God gave him twice as much cattle, livestock, as he had before. His broken relationships were restored. His family and all who rejected him took him back. Job's, um, Job's family was restored, not just his relationships, but his, 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 his immediate family was restored. He had seven more sons, and he had three daughters. And it goes on and on and on about his daughters. They were beautiful. He gave them inheritance along with the sons. And it gives us the names of the daughters. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't name the sons. This is highly unusual in biblical literature. 
Normally, the sons would be named and the daughters wouldn't be named unless there was some special reason. But in this case, and also the daughters wouldn't receive an inheritance, but in this case, the daughters receive an inheritance along with the sons and only the names of the daughters are mentioned. And it talks about how exceedingly beautiful they were. Just gives you an, a, a picture of the extravagance of God. Of how uh, the Lord just restored everything after Job went through this terrible trial in his life. Not only that, but we notice that Job's health was restored. He lived to see four generations of his family, it tells us in verse 16. And when he breathed his last, and we come to the end of the book, Job died an old man and full of days. Think about that. After all of the things that he went through, this is the way he ended his life. He ended his life with his life restored. And he died a peaceful death, very different than the death that he expected when he was going through his troubles. Well, there are um, four applications that I think we can take from the book of Job. And it's about living joyfully. This book is about living joyfully. Some people like to read the book of Job when they're depressed. And, and there's, there's one reason why we should read this book when we're depressed, is that it should give us hope that the things that we're going through are for a reason and for a purpose. The first one is this, live joyfully because nothing happens to us without God's permission. Live joyfully because nothing happens to us that is without God's permission. This is very important because this goes to the essence of, of who we believe God is. If God is a good God and nothing happens to us, that doesn't happen by his permission, then we can understand that then whatever we go through, it is by his sovereign will and plan and design and that he has a good purpose for it. Let me, let me give you an example. There are lots of competing ideas out there about this. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the book The Shack. Uh, the Shack was a very popular book, sold millions of copies a few years ago. I think uh, made $95 million at the box office last time I checked. And... Um, but the shack offers just an awful understanding of God's work in the world. In fact, uh, it's heretical. It's a heretical book. If you, have, if you have ever read it, I've read the book. I read the book because I saw on the back it had this generation's Pilgrim's Progress. And I thought, wow, if this is this generation's Pilgrim's Progress, I better read this book. And I was excited when I started reading the book, but the more I read it, the more I became concerned. It's full of heresy. Heresy about the Trinity, about the way that God works in the world. And, um, and, and really, when it gets to this issue about suffering, the answer for our suffering is, 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 is not a biblical answer. It's not the answer that we find in the book of Job. In fact, in the, in the book, in the shack, the the reason why we suffer, the reason why there's evil in the world is because God gave human beings free will and because God gave human beings free will, he can do nothing to interrupt the flow of events in the world and therefore evil happens. He wishes he, it didn't, but there's nothing he can do about it. It paints the pictures of God as this impotent God and it brings comfort to people, particularly when we start blaming God for our troubles and we say, oh, well, God's not at fault for this. Uh, so therefore, it, 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 on one hand, it makes feel, people feel better about the relationship with the Lord. But it, but it offers to us no hope. 
God can't do anything about the evil that's in the world that's just going to happen. And he just stands by and watches it and allows it to happen just because he doesn't want to interfere because we're kind of the sovereigns of the universe. It's a backwards way of looking at God and his power and his dealing with people. In fact, in this text, it's very clear that the Lord was behind everything that happened to Job. Notice what it says at the beginning of the book in chapter 2, verse 3. It says this, this is the Lord's words to Satan when Satan came and wanted to inflict all of these things on Job. And the reason why Satan wanted these things inflicted on Job is because Satan was convinced that the only reason why God was blessing Job, or, or God, uh, Job was serving God was for all the blessings that he got from God. And so, and so uh, the, the process had begun, the trial had begun, and uh, this is what the Lord said to Satan. He said, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This was the Lord's purpose. This was the Lord's plan for his life, that he go through this suffering. Let's look at it again in the, in the same chapter, in the same last chapter of the book in order to make this point and to emphasize the point. The author wants us to understand this. The author wants us to have an accurate understanding of God's work in the world. Look what it says in verse 11 uh, here in, uh, in, the, in, the last, in the last chapter. Here, 42.11. Here we go. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. Here's the point. God often has a higher purpose in our suffering than anything we can comprehend now. The reason why Job went through his suffering wasn't because somehow he had offended God. The reason why he went through his suffering was because he was the apple of God's eye and God wanted to show him off to the whole universe. And God wanted to use his life to help us when we go through our own struggling to understand that there are more things going on beyond our suffering than meets the eye. And so it's important that we recognize that God isn't some kind of impotent God who can do nothing about our pain and misery. But as we go through this pain and as we go through this trial and these trials that we face, they're all for a purpose. And God uses those things to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. He uses their suffering to, to draw us near in fellowship to him. But he has a purpose in everything that we go through, and he's a good God. And so whatever it is we face, whether it be physical problems, whether it be financial problems, whether they be problems that we're having at work, troubles somewhere else, we know that as we go through these troubles that the watchful care of God is upon us and will be okay because of that. He will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and he has the power to withhold all that might come our way that is beyond our ability to withstand. But he promises that whatever we go through, he will go through with us, and he will be our strength, and he will be our shield, and he will carry us because he has a purpose in it. Let's think about, um, for any of you who um, maybe uh, perhaps you think about uh, how trouble helps us, just even beyond the, the, the domain of the theological domain, just in our own life. How many of you have ever known a Marine who went off to um, boot camp? And uh, after they were in boot camp for a little while, they called up, 
And they had their first phone call. They could call mom and dad and said, oh, mom and dad, this place is great. I mean, we spent all of our time sitting by the water. We're uh, sipping our lemonade. We're taking it easy. Everybody's so nice here. It's just so good. I love, I love it all. Like, I, I just want to stay here. I'm like on permanent vacation. I just, I just lounge around all day, and I get money put in my bank account, and it's great. I get to wear these cool dress uniforms. I mean, it's so easy. It's so fun, and I love it. You ever hear anybody do that? No. Boot camp is hard by design. There's a purpose in it. And something, is being, something good is taking place as a result of that design, as a result of the trouble and the, and the, and the pain that, that those, that those um, Marines go through when they go through that particular trouble. And the same thing is true in our own lives. That when we go through troubles and we face struggles and we have hard things that we're dealing with, it's all by design, but God has a good purpose in it. And when we're going through them, we need to trust him and ask him, Lord, what are you teaching me in this thing that I'm going through? Help me to see it from your vantage point. Help me not to get caught up in my troubles to such a degree that now my, t- my heart turns against you because I know that you're good and I know that you have a purpose in it and I know that you're walking with me through this and I know that you are there even though there are times where I feel like I'm all alone. I trust you, Lord. You see, we need to live joyfully because we know that nothing happens to us without God's permission. Number two, we need to live joyfully because God is our shepherd and he will defeat our great enemy. Because God is our shepherd and he will defeat our great enemy. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is what we're dealing with. This is uh, what we're up against. But it tells us as it goes on, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. We can see that even in our time, our suffering is linked to Satan's attack on God's people. But the reality is, is that our Lord has defeated our great enemy. Now we see this We see uh, all the metaphorical language here. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, what does the Bible describe we, us people as? We're uh, his followers who belong to him. We're described as sheep, right? Well, sheep can't fight lions, can they? So what do sheep need to do? They need to stay near the shepherd. And just like David killed the lion and the bear, so God has defeated our enemy, the roaring lion, We need to stay near to him. Third thing that we can take from this is that uh, we need to live joyfully since we know that our suffering won't last one second longer than is necessary. One of the reasons why we often develop a distorted view of God, particularly when we go through suffering, is because somehow we adopt this idea that maybe God enjoys watching us suffer. God enjoys watching us in the pain that we are in. But this text proves that that is not so. In fact, remember that as soon as Job said uncle, as soon as Job repented, as soon as God gave him that bigger perspective, what did Job do? Well, once Job repented, God 
blessed him with twice all that he had before. His suffering didn't last one second longer than what was necessary. Think about the story of Jesus when he went to the cross. No one could be more debased and humiliated than Jesus was when he was nailed to the cross, the Son of God, nailed to the cross for the sins of the world. And God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, and God turned his face away from him. And Jesus was more lonely at that moment than anything that he had ever experienced, more humiliated, more humble than anything he could have ever imagined or known in that moment. But what happened to him once he had died, once he had paid the debt for our sin? Men came and got him, rich men, prominent men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They came and got him, and what? They buried him in a tomb with the rich, right? What's the point of that? Why did that happen? Why did God design it that way? Well, the reason was because the Son of God was not going to suffer that kind of humiliation one second longer than was necessary for him to do what needed to be done to purchase our redemption. And the same is true in our own lives. The Lord isn't one who just holds us in that place of suffering where we are just there and somehow enjoys it and keeps us in that situation. But as soon as whatever purpose is accomplished for our suffering, God lifts it off of us. What a joy that is. He doesn't do it just to punish us, but he's a loving God and he has a purpose in all of the things that we go through. A far cry from the, from the view of God that we get in the, in the shack. And finally, child of God, live joyfully because, because <laughs> you know that your Father in heaven cares for you. Live joyfully because you know that your Father in heaven cares for you. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a promise in the Bible that one day our suffering is going to come to an end, that there's going to be a great banquet and that we are going to enjoy that banquet with the Lord. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to put that, it's going to put that uh, celebration that happened in Seattle to shame. To shame! We read this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made himself ready. And we continue on in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you want to be there on that day when there's this great marriage supper and Christ is there and all of his people are with him and we celebrate with him his conquest of, of sin and death, his conquest of the evil one and all opposition to him and we spend eternity with him in his presence? Do you want to know that? Do you want to experience it? Began the message with a story about, about uh, Ruth Anna and Roy Metzger. They, uh, they were put in a service elevator and they were sent right out of that banquet and they ended up on street level and they went to their car and they walked in silence to their car and finally they got in their car and they started driving away and then Roy asked Ruth Anna, he said, um, Honey, what just happened? 
And she said, well, last summer, the invitation came in the mail. The RSVP came in the mail, and I was just too busy. And she said, um, so um, I never sent it back. And I figured, hey, we're singing in the wedding. Of course they're going to have a place for us. We didn't need to RSVP. And then she began to weep as she realized that that will be the reality for many people. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we heal the sick? Lord, Lord, didn't we um, give money to this project? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this great thing? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, there's a book, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Unless our name is written in that book, we will not be admitted to the banquet. This glorious banquet where all the heavenly hosts will be gathered, where the king will be seated at the table in the place of honor. This whole banquet that is, that is, that is given to those who love him and serve him. And if our name isn't written in the book, we're not going to be at the banquet. You see, for the believer, for the child of God, for the one who knows Christ... There's going to come a day where all suffering will end and there will be bliss forever. And the question, the question that I have for you today is whether or not you, like Job, have turned from your sin and trusted in the only provision that God has given, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. It is in him that we have life. It is him that we can, we can be reconciled to God. It is when we have faith in him that our, our names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Have you come to that place? Have you trusted him? Do you know him? Will you be there? For all of us who belong to Christ, there will come a day when all suffering will come to an end and we will enjoy all eternity with him. But for others who don't trust him, your eternity will be very different. You will be shut out from the presence of God and all you will know for all eternity is suffering. What will it be for you? Will you turn to him and find life? Will you walk away from this invitation that he's given And be shut out from his presence forever. What will it be for you? I pray that this day you would trust him. That you would enter into a relationship with him. That you turn from your sin and believe upon him that he is your, your savior who died in your place. Who took upon himself your sin and rose again from the dead. Who conquered death and gave us life. I pray that you would turn to him and once you do, you will experience the beginning of a new life that will last forever. And one day, when that great banquet takes place, your name will be written in that book and you won't be sent away, but you will be invited in. Let's pray.